Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Radicals in Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. This September, Pluto went up to Liverpool as an official partner of The World Transformed, a four-day politics, arts and music festival which was running alongside the Labour Party conference. We were there selling books, as publishers like to do, but also, and more significantly, we were relaunching The Left Book Club, a project originally founded by Victor Golantz in 1936. The aim of The Left Book Club, or LBC, was simple, to popularise ideas of the left and combat the rise of fascism. In other words, the political education of ordinary people on a massive scale. And through books like George Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier, it had reached, by the eve of the Second World War, a membership of nearly 60,000, with 1,200 reading groups scattered around the country. What made the LBC so necessary in the late 30s are the same things that make its relaunch so important today, in the face of rising ethno-nationalism, fascism, and an economic system that fuels growing inequality, we need a space outside the mainstream media that doesn't simply reinforce the values of the ruling elite and the status quo. So it was kind of serendipitous when we learned that the world transformed was to play host to the relaunch of not just one octogenarian institution of the left, but two. And we're very excited to have with us today some of the people behind the relaunch of the latter, Tribune, Britain's oldest democratic socialist publication established in 1937 and now back. I'm Chris Brown, and I'd like to welcome to the show Kaya Barg, Owen Hathley and Ronan Burtonshaw, Associate Publisher, Culture Editor and Editor, respectively, of the new Revitalised Tribune. So thanks to you all for coming on the show. Uh, It's really great to have you with us. I think the fact that both Tribune and the LBC were relaunched at the same time at the same political event says something. Clearly there's something in the air in 2018, a feeling of a need for an articulate left socialist media. But I'd love to know a bit more about what specifically prompted the relaunch of Tribune now. Well, I think there's a number of ways of looking at that question, right, in terms of why we went ahead with the specific project we did. That's probably the best way of, of taking it on. I mean, the question we got most since the relaunch of Tribune is, why did you do this? I think that's overwhelmingly the, the kind of uh, the question that people want to know. Why did you not just start a new magazine? Why did you go with Tribune, what was the thinking behind it? Because for a lot of people, they hadn't heard of Tribune in a long time. Tribune was something they would find when they were reading about the 70s, the 80s, perhaps further back, but it wasn't something that they associated with the the left today. And a number of us who were thinking about this, we were looking at Tribune from the, the sense that there's a question that's unanswered in the left at the moment about tradition which is for a long time, certainly from the period since I came into the left, you know, about 2008 and the period after and the crisis, there was a lot of discussion about new things, new projects, new movements, new parties. I understand why people were looking at things that way because when I came into the left, um, and I think it's the same for a lot of people of that kind of post-2008 generation, the left was pretty decrepit. You know, people were looking around at the institutions that they were supposed to use to fight back in this period where things were falling apart. And we're seeing um, institutions that were not capable of doing what they felt needed to be done. The social democratic parties obviously were beginning the long process that we're seeing now of being hollowed out. The radical left was really marginal at that period after the 90s and the early 2000s. There was a kind of decline as well over time in the more movement-oriented left which had had, obviously, peaks around Seattle and Genoa. And so I understand that impetus. And yet, at the same time, we are sitting here in 2018 with the most enduring breakthrough the radical left has made in the West 
being one based around a veteran socialist around for decades, fighting on fairly traditional socialist grounds in a party that's one of the oldest social democratic parties in the world. And it isn't just in Britain that that's the case. You know, you look at Bernie Sanders. We can look at various parts of the phenomenon in France around Mélenchon and the France Insoumise, but you've got essentially a similar figure, somebody who came out of the left wing of the um, Parti Socialiste historically. And so this is a fairly generalised trend. Actually, a lot of that discussion about new things ignored what was going to be the left's greatest strength in this period of time, in my view, which was the enduring relevance of our historic arguments, that we were correct in how we saw the development of the economy. In fact, the 20th century has vindicated far more of what the left believed than disproven it. There was this narrative that came out at the end of the 20th century that the left historic arguments were wrong, and we now know that is not the case. And I was thinking of it just the other day because there was that blow-up. This is at the end of October. People will remember this if they have their head in their mad Twitter cycle. There was that blow-up over the phrase socialism or barbarism. This was in the wake of Bolsonaro's victory in Brazil and the, the British commentariat were consumed for a day by debating whether that was a relevant phrase or not. And there was a lot of you know, historical, really bad, as, as often the case, historical discussion about the history of the socialist movement that was tied into that debate. And people were talking about Luxembourg and so on. Actually, socialism or barbarism isn't a Luxembourg quote. It's a Kautsky quote. It comes out of Kautsky writing about the Erfurt programme, I think. And if you break down that programme and what it was asking for at the end of the 19th century, it's amazing how much of it endures today. It was considered to be the kind of leading programme of the international left at the end of the 19th century. And what it's asking for is taxes on income and, and property, the full extension of the franchise, the right to, to free education, the right to free access to the justice system, free health care, even the, the questions around secularization and, and so on that was contained within uh, that document are still relevant in lots of countries. Obviously, I originally come from Ireland, where 95% of our primary schools are still in the charge of the Catholic Church, maybe less so in other countries, but it's still the case that more than 100 years ago, the document that was a kind of consensus as the platform of the international left, every one of its points hold up today. Every one of its points could be in a manifesto today. And so for us, the Tribune project was part of an assertion that our tradition is still relevant and that so much of what has consumed the left around the need for new things is understandable but ultimately misguided. I think for any tradition to be living and relevant it's not just about reanimating an an old project, but you know, building upon it and moving it forward, and and being critical of of strengths and and weaknesses. And by refounding Tribune, we're we're kind of taking back a certain space and reaching for tools that haven't been available to the left for many generations now. I mean, with anything where you're sort of re-establishing a continuity, you have to sort of explain why that continuity was broken in the first place. You know, that lots of those institutions had been moribund for quite a long time. And then there was this, in many ways, very shocking thing three years ago of them suddenly being the thing through which people were trying to push for change, which was completely and utterly unexpected. And I think there's been quite a lot of sort of rushing to try and sort of build something 
below that so it doesn't then sort of disappear quite so easily. Quite a lot of the time there's a sort of generational leap that you have to do that you sort of, that, that, there's a phrase that I always like of Walter Benjamin's about, sort of tiger's leap into the past, mm. right? And that frequently involves sort of leaping over quite a lot of the recent past. In this case, the fact that if we're honest, you know, a lot of the labour left tradition and, in, 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 you know, the, the new labour years did appear to be completely moribund, did appear to be almost completely dead. Of course, we now know that it wasn't. But in order to kind of keep that thing going, we, you know, we can't necessarily replicate the mistakes that they'd made that had led to that in the first place. And you can see that in the way that a lot of the, the sort of generational makeup of a lot of the movements now almost seems to be people that are either extremely young or extremely old. Mm. And so there's this sort of gap in the middle. And I suppose a project like this is a little bit sort of trying to smooth something like that out and trying to kind of create a lineage and create a continuity which actually had been broken in a lot of ways. Both Owen and Kate are right that there's no point in simply trying to reanimate or being, you know, uncritical um, in how you're dealing with this uh, tribune tradition, which is extensive, obviously, not just related to what it published, but related to its affiliated tribune group in Parliament, which was, you know, defined the Labour left for so many decades. But there is a question, right, about how we're dealing with the idea of our tradition, when you've got a whole series of new people, particularly this young generation, coming into the left, enthused by Corbynism, and you see it, you know, most represented in institutions like Momentum, but like, you know, it's represented across the, the voting base for the Corbyn project. And, you know, a lot of what they hear about socialism is its mockery in the mainstream press. The idea that, you know, if they were around long enough, uh, they're like my generation in the late 20s, they would have heard about socialists being dinosaurs, um, not to be taken seriously. And if they're around now, they're coming into the movement more recently, socialism will be, you know, for young and naive people. Actually, we should talk more about our tradition, particularly with people who are newer to supporting our politics. Because when you reach back, it was mass movements, out of which socialist movement sprang that you know won just about everything that made society worth living in that this is our tradition at its root is not the caricature presented in in the press to be mocked at which is done deliberately as a means of robbing people of the confidence to go out there and express their political views robbing people of any sort of pride in their political activity this is a daily kind of psychological warfare that's going on against people of the left it is the tradition that broke the divine right of kings and abolished the torture chambers and won the right to vote for the vast majority of people and won what rights there are for women in society, what freedoms LGBT people enjoy, that led the anti-racist movement, that built the trade unions, that built the welfare state. And Tribune, it's not just, I know I can, you know, we can end up talking in these traditional terms in an abstract. Tribune actually has, you can trace through its history, where in each of those brackets... Tribune has played its role. So you go back to its foundation as a publication supporting the Republican cause and the Popular Front across Europe, the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, and then the Popular Front position against fascism. It goes on from there, and Tribunite Nye Bevan founds the National Health Service, not as some kind of sop to British capitalism, but, and he says it very deliberately when he does it in his centerpiece speech, that this is against the hedonism of capitalist society. You've got Jenny Lee, who's too often kind of left behind in history as Nye Bevan's wife, actually is responsible for the 
open university and broadening out the access to higher education to huge numbers of people. Ellen Wilkinson, one of the first people to write compellingly about the situation facing working women. Barbara Castle is on our cover, who uh, introduced the Equal Pay Act, 1970. Then you've got the anti-colonial tradition that Tribune had, which is often overlooked in discussions about the tradition of Tribune. Tribune had Nehru writing for it in the late 30s, demanding that the British left support the cause for Indian independence and be anti-imperialist as well as anti-fascist. It had Albert Luthuli, who's the head of the ANC in South Africa, calling for the British left to oppose apartheid in 1961. Julius Nyerere, he was the first president of Tanzania, independent Tanzania, talking about how independence would not be enough without anti-capitalism. Um, and it was also probably out of the labour movement publications, the one at the forefront of fighting Enoch Powell at the period of the infamous Rivers of Blood speech. So it isn't just abstract. Tribune, why we can be critical at times of its failure to be left-wing enough and to support wholeheartedly enough socialist politics, that tradition, that movement that we talk about as having won most of what makes a society that we live in worth living in, Tribune played its role historically at all of those points. And so it is worth giving people who are coming into the left now particularly those who don't have the connections back to the time when we had a mass left before, who feel a little bit like historically isolated (laughs) because the left was so marginal for such a long time, a connection to the movements that uh, created uh, our tradition. And I think that's one of the things that makes relaunching Tribune worth doing. At the launch event in September, so back at The World Transformed, uh, you had David Harvey on your panel, and he joked about being able to fit in another seven-year project, I think, um, before his 90th birthday, and expressed his hope as well that Tribune's going to pay attention to the long-term project, carve out for itself a niche where long-term questions get addressed, where long-term analyses are worked through. Is that a goal that you share for the magazine? Um, and, And I guess what does success look like for you so far as Tribune is concerned? To jump in here, I think that's also one of the reasons Tribune has been launched as a print magazine, because a print format does enable you to have some kind of continuity in in a conversation over time. So I think that's absolutely a name that Tribune should be going for. And rather than being just another online form, print can gather together different perspectives and voices into one frame in a particular issue, but certainly over issues, um, create something that's more than the sum of its parts. Not wanting it to be ephemeral is quite an important thing. You know, there's a huge amount of left magazines and journals and sites of, of, of various kinds and of very varying quality. And there's often this sort of sense that this stuff disappears into the ether very, very quickly. I suppose it's sort of trying to create something that feels a little bit more permanent, that some sort of pole of attraction that, that you can sort of organise and discuss around that doesn't feel like it's just going to disappear until you use the Wayback Machine to find out what it said five years ago. <laughs> An institution. And there's a very good reason to want one of those um, in the British press landscape as it is today. We, we were trying to think, you know, um, when was the last time there was something which was to the left of the New Statesman which reached an audience that is somewhat comparable. You know, the the biggest candidate is the historic Tribune, which was publishing, you know, had a print run of 200,000 after the, the Second World War. But that's going a very, very long way back. You know, the 
the mirror had a circulation of five million in the 70s. So it was a different time. But trying to have a, an institution that can last through years, that can build itself to a point of being self-sustaining and is able to situate itself to the left of the New Statesman and the Guardian is important. It's important for rebalancing the British media landscape and it's important for being able to influence, how would we say it, the circulation of information on the left. Because, look, both of those, while they have very good left-wing writers in The Guardian and New Statesman, um, some of whom actually contribute for us as well, so we have to be careful. But no, no. Um, no, seriously, they have some very good left-wing writers, but their editorial line is not with the left. That's absolutely clear. We've seen that the last number of years without equivocation. I mean, one of the striking things is is how much what's happened in the last three years hasn't shifted that even in the slightest. Yes. I suppose a year ago there might have been a sense of like, after the upset of the election and after it was clear that this wasn't going to go away, that they might sort of, I suppose, you know, in the sort of way that paranoid ultra-lefts always think of things, you know, that they would incorporate the left and then, you know, make them conservative by giving them good full-time jobs and making sure they could afford flats, whereas... They haven't done this at all. You can count the people that, you know, the token leftists that get to go on question time on one hand, you know, and the people that get to contribute to these things on, on, on one hand. And so if they're not going to do it, you have to step in and do something because otherwise it's, there's just nothing like that in the mainstream. And they benefit from a monopoly. One of the reasons why the, the media landscape is the way it is, and I mentioned the mirror before, that's a kind of a broader discussion in related to what's going on with the the mirror's decline and its its readership and the, the battles they're having to try and sustain themselves, which I think is also very important, but in a slightly different category to kind of a six times a year magazine like us. But look, those institutions benefit from monopoly on the left because what they are able to do is rely on the fact that left-wing people will continue to read these um, outlets despite the fact their editorial line is hostile to them because they don't feel that there is anything that is in that sphere that, that could rival them. And so we've had a development of a lot of new media, a lot of which is, is very good and was crucial to the development of the Corbyn project itself. But they haven't managed to break that monopoly that you know relatively hostile institutions have over left-wing readership. It may be very ambitious for us to try to do that, but it is what we want to do. We're a very long way off now but this is only going a month. So let's see where we get to. Well, that's another reason to, you know, look to a, a historically established magazine because we don't want, it's a it's an intervention. We don't want to be niche. Hopefully Tribune can take up a presence on newsstands and sit alongside The Economist or Prospect Magazine or New Statesman and um, strongly represent a different viewpoint, which is, you know, so far been totally absent. That question of the economist is an interesting one too. I, I think their model is actually, so as much as you can be um, critical of their more, what we would call maybe centrist media, you, you can respect their models in terms of how they disseminate their ideas. And the economist works very, very well. It has, you don't have to have a degree in neoclassical economics to understand the ideas put forward by the economist. And yet every article they produce is deeply ideological. It's absolutely clear what they're advocating for, and they reach an enormous audience. Now, they're obviously international, but that for us should be part of what we're what we're thinking, which is that 
they're taken to be intellectually serious by their audience. They reach a broad range of people. They are clearly ideological and they survive well as an institution. I think the key too is it's informative and I, I think Tribune should aim to be interesting for, for anyone, you know, regardless of their politics, by providing sort of quality, critical journalism and um, long-form analysis that, you know, we, we have to be able to push beyond the the established left. I mean, there's a lot of work to do. We can't be just speaking to ourselves. I mean, one thing I was going to bring in is, I mean, the new uh, November, December 18 uh, issue of Tribune kind of wears the Jacobin influence on its sleeve, I would say, certainly in terms of the attractive and distinctive design. Jacobin has been very successful since it was founded you know, a few years ago. Why has it done so well? What is it about that magazine and also about the political context into which it's intervened that's meant that it struck a chord? Uh, and to what extent would you say Tribune is aiming to sort of emulate that or mark a difference with that? I mean, speaking purely for myself here, um, the most important thing for Jacobin for me was always the design. You know, the, which isn't which isn't uh, intended as a, as a as a diss of the of the writing, but of the fact that it just stood out so much on the left, mm. where there was almost this kind of fear that good design and looking stylish and you know and having actually a, a, a nice object, you know, already were halfway to selling out if like the, the magazine looked legible and had nice pictures in it, and you know, and I think that was just idiotic. And part of this really tedious middle-class hersher idea of what socialism is, and the fact that it, it it didn't look like that, you know, it made socialism seem like something that was sort of optimistic and exciting and modern, was really really important. Yeah, I think you have to sort of um, take our hats off here to Rumika Forbes, the creative director of Tribune and, and Jacobin, because. What the the format manages to do really beautifully is to illustrate and illuminate ideas. It's it's actually a form of content as well. It's not just pretty packaging. So if we're going to talk about the Americans, I'll, I'll use a very cliched American <laughs> anecdote. Um, now one of the things I liked, so I previously worked with, with Jacobin, that's where I've been the last few years. One of the the... The things I liked, the anecdotes I liked when um, people were discussing this with, with Jacobin is they had this Martin Luther King quote that, uh, that comes from his own writing about his youth where he'd be going out the door to uh, a rally and his mother would pull him back by the collar and say, if you're going to say something radical, wear a suit. And there's a certain element <laughs> to which that is uh, embedded in uh, Jacobin's understanding. And, and it resonated with me because I remember my first campaigns when I was doing electoral campaigns back in Ireland um, and we were fighting from the left. And there was some of the poster designs were just like you couldn't believe how bad they were. And I would raise this and some of these would be like, yeah, what are we doing? What, this, I mean, this looks like it was done on MS Paint last night. It does speak to, to how seriously people are going to take it. And I remember one of those meetings, someone, you know, in all seriousness said to me, uh, the workers, the workers don't care about design. And it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard because I mean, the whole world is graphic design. I mean, you can't walk down the road without seeing a barrage of logos and advertisements or everything that people interact with on a daily basis is, is design. And so if you're not able or willing to enter into that space uh, to try to put your ideas across you're going to, to suffer from people not taking you seriously. There's also a sense of not wanting to suggest that there's anything entryist in this, but I think that, you know, that you can, 
You can spot a left-wing publication at 50 paces. It's either the MS Paint stuff that Ronan talks about, or it's doing like spins on Russian constructivism, which is funny given how incredibly modern and exciting those designs were the first time in the 1920s and how completely stale it now looks. Um, so immediately it's like, ah, they're from that club. They're the people doing that thing. You know, it's like goths or something. It's like, ah, that's that's the goth publication. That's where the goths go. If, if you're wanting to change society, it's best not to look like a club. I mean, I had one of my sheet of questions here. Why a print magazine? And you've kind of answered it twice now. For the same reason that book sales, print book sales, have started increasing again, people have finally woken up, especially in the UK, to the idea that the design, the object, is is important. I really do believe in this strongly. A lot of people, when you talk about new left-wing media projects, they say, oh, you know, you can go online. It's great now. You know, you, you don't need to be producing print anymore. It, it saves so much in cost. But it also means you've no revenue stream at all to keep the thing going. So for the vast majority of new left projects that have launched online, not all, some of them have found models. Some of them have, you know, worked very well with their Patreon um, fundraising. But the difference when you've got a print publication is it allows you much more easily to build an institution. Um, and it is partly because when people are you know, engaged in the media landscape at the moment, you, you have to have something that stands out. So in order to, to get people to be willing to do what they don't do with the vast majority of media they consume, which is to contribute to it, either you have to have you know a cause, which can get you so far, or you have to have something like what, what, what Tribune is, which is that people will want to have an issue of Tribune because it's we put a lot of our time into designing it and making sure that it looks well and that its content is a very high level. They will want to sit down over a weekend and read it. And I know we got a lot of stick over um, T-Gate and the kind of phenomenon that followed from that on Twitter. <laughs> that was just a poor quality. Which we do not need to relitigate at this moment. But also in response to that, if you go through Tribune Twitter account now, what you'll see is hundreds of our subscribers who've sent in images of themselves with the with Tribune and, and a cup of tea. And you can say, well, you know, we've somehow created our own meme off the back of a completely mad misstep in our early promotions. But also what it is is pretty legitimate. People sitting down, taking you know a bit of a break, reading Tribune because they want to have a copy of, of Tribune because, yes, its content is very good, but also it looks very well. So it makes a big difference to have um, a print publication. And I think the, the kind of wisdom that was prevalent in the in left media discussions for the last number of years about how everything needs to start online should be reconsidered for that reason. I was involved in numerous left-wing media projects over years that did that and that were gone in a year or two years because it's very hard to sustain yourself. And print necessarily is collaborative. I mean, with a print publication, you're working with printers and distributors and it's worth mentioning here Tribune is printed by a unionized press so it's already a much more outward facing project than sometimes how privatized and fragmented online reading can be. So Owen in your column in the new edition uh, you introduce the culture section of the magazine and you make a pretty strong case for the inclusion of writing about art, cinema, architecture, music, literature and so on in what is a quote-unquote sort of political magazine. i just love to hear more from you on why these kind of explorations of culture are vital to the building of sort of our movement. I'm not in the habit of quoting Tony Crossland, 
But there's a, a wonderful bit in his otherwise horrendously dated book, The Future of Socialism, where he kind of just asks why it is that we assume that socialism will be miserable, that it will involve, you know, sort of art that improves you, you know, why it will be a sort of rather Victorian affair of kind of stodge and sort of visual stodge and, and sort of writing stodge. Um, something which he blames the Fabian Society for, I think, I think quite rightly, and that particular tradition of very sort of Protestant, upper middle class approaches to socialism. And and so for me, it's kind of I wanted to talk about culture without immediately working out what the party line of of that culture is, which I think has often been a flaw on the left of kind of like you know going to see the latest blockbuster and going, what is the political line of this film? You know, does this particular product of of a gigantic Hollywood studio, you know, communicate the correct line about climate change or, or the correct line about imperialism? And of course, it doesn't. Obviously, it doesn't. That's not that you know, and that's not how culture works. You know, it's extraordinarily difficult to find culture that will entirely accord with your politics a lot of the time. You know, a lot of the most interesting writers and also a lot of the writers that have most consistently sort of inspired working class writers and socialist writers have been people that are madly right wing. You know, Swift being a great example who, you know, both Michael Foote and Orwell were huge fans of and Swift was an absolutely raving Tory. This doesn't necessarily mean that you can that what he did wasn't wasn't interesting and couldn't then be be used for socialist purposes. So partly it's it, it's from that of kind of trying not to treat culture dogmatically but also quite keen to sort of treat culture in a much larger sense rather than it being culture as sort of cultural products. And there it's really also about kind of linking to the traditions and institutions that were created in the 20th century by the labour movement, by working class organisations, and the fact that in some cases they do still exist and for the most part aren't very good. And that that is a real sort of front, I think, and will prove to be a major front in the next few years. That the welfare state was built and bits of it do still survive. You know, there are public spaces, you know, there are squares and the and, and the town halls and the post offices and the hospitals, and these are still there, you know, in many cases very, very, very heavily privatized. And, you know, change can be done through them to a degree. And, you know, these things are things that are part of everyday life and part of part of our experience that shouldn't be ignored, but rather should be treated as something that, you know, that we created and then let be sold off to Carillion and we should take them back. Thinking about culture is one way of doing that. Thinking about why it is that, to use a really obvious example and the one that's always been my obsession, why the built environment is as it is, you know, why it is that using a railway station or, or, or walking through the streets in Britain, you know, or putting cladding materials on a tower block is such a frequently sort of dangerous and unpleasant activity. And I think the answer to that is primarily political but is often cultural. And it's often a kind of one about sort of belief in that these things are irrelevant, I guess. That how something looks and feels is completely uninteresting. Um, you know, what matters? Is it getting built? And, and, and you can find, if you really, really want, you know, new public architecture in Britain, for instance. You can find new railway stations. You can find new council housing even in a few places. They're mostly pretty grim. There's almost a kind of particular kind of haptic experience of the British public sector, you know, sort of going to a PFI hospital that's all sort of spikes and CCTV cameras and Tresper and and kind of leaking wavy roofs built in New Labour and these sort of blary quiffs that everything has. And that, that experience is a is a political one, I think. And I think in many ways we need to kind of look at Vienna in the 1920s or look at a lot of the 1960s, both the kind of official left and the non-parliamentary left in the 1960s and how important sort of space and place was for them. 
and look at the way that they kind of radicalized everyday life and made the culture of everyday life the thing that they wanted to use for socialist transformation. Well, what, what you're talking about is also creating a, a culture, not, not just resisting neoliberal ennui, but, you know, actually offering something or, or starting a conversation about what we want. Well, I suppose just another point in traditions, and I'm going to also sort of quote someone I don't like after Crossland, which is Tony Judd. And in his Ill First Land, which is an essay that I was intrigued by, it being kind of half really insightful and half total nonsense, one of the things that he kind of argues is that, you know, the left has something to conserve. And you can interpret that in quite a sort of Stephen Kinnock way, if you want, of kind of, you know, what needs to preserve us, the nation and the family. But you can also interpret it as a kind of like all of these things were were built like they really happened and they did make people's lives immeasurably better. You know, the NHS, council housing, these things really did make a huge improvement in people's lives and we have to absolutely maintain that. The sort of idea that we're sort of floating about in some sort of historical ether and that, you know, the only thing that can change things is this sort of apocalyptic event that will usher in full communism is, you know, if it ever had any element of truth, I think it certainly seems pretty ludicrous now. And that you know, one of the things is to assess those things. What survives of them? What worked in them? What didn't work? What can we use? What can we not use? And I think of culture as quite a quite a useful way to, to look at that in many ways. People can obviously get the first issue now. What's likely to come up in the next edition? What are the subjects and themes likely to feature in future editions more broadly? Have you got... Um particular thrust that you're trying to get at will that change issue to issue i can't tell you that that's yeah. <laughs> top secret i think the best way of doing this is to kind of speak to the purpose of tribune then at this moment on the one hand as i said i think the breakthrough here in 2015 has been hugely important when that breakthrough happened in 2015 there were a number of left-wing projects projects you know to the left of the established social democratic consensus that were doing relatively well. Obviously, it was shortly after Syriza were in power in Greece. It was the year after Podemos had had their breakthrough in Spain. There was still more, shall we say, of the left um, in Latin America that hadn't been rolled back. Um, more recent years have obviously seen a wave of, of successes for the hard right in Latin America. And now, in 2018, when you... Well, I was thinking this you know, in response to the Bolsonaro's victory in Brazil, which has come after a series of breakthroughs for hard right, the far right, we can debate those definitions, but for serious insurgent forces on the right. And if you had told us, I think, in 2014, 2015, that the left would be this far behind, that there would have been a whole series of... I think it's three of the world's five biggest democracies now led by breakthroughs on the right, if you include Modi in, in India as well. If you had told us this would be the, the situation, I think we would have been more optimistic for the ability of breakthroughs to come on the left. Um, we would have felt certainly in Europe that the left was better placed than those movements to be the one challenging the established order and trying to bring about uh, some kind of change. And it hasn't been the case. And so, you know, right now the Corbyn project exists as a beacon on the landscape uh, of international politics for the left. There is nothing even remotely comparable in terms of what can be held on to. And that is 
on the one hand, a huge tribute to people who've built it, particularly to people, as to be said, who fought so hard for the project in its darkest hours, you know, when the most resolute socialist was was wondering, is this thing going to work? Is it going to break through? Because of the relentless pressure, obviously the attempted coup against Corbyn, the continued attacks from the from the press, the low poll numbers in late 2016, early 2017. But on the other hand, as well as being a tribute to what they've managed to do, it's a big pressure. It means that the question of the left in power in Britain, the question of a socialist project that can actually win an election and then introduce a programme through significant struggle, without question, but introduce a programme that can radically improve the lives of working people, it really has to happen. And so Tribune, I think, should put itself in a space where we are talking about the difficult questions, on the one hand, of what that means, how you're dealing with the state, how you're dealing with the economy, what the significant obstacles that we have learned about also from history. So we recently did a a panel up in Manchester where we had people talking about the Latin American governments, the Mitterrand experience in France, the Olof Palme reforming social democratic governments in Sweden, and the obstacles that all of those governments of various stripes of the left faced when they were when they were in power. These conversations have to be had. And I do think, in fairness, there's been a lack of that level of debate in general. There's been some good attempts to, to put uh, those cases forward. And, you know, we, we should, in our coverage, bring together some of the people who've been trying to push those arguments forward. I think you'll see that, people who've written for lots of other left publications and so on um, on these on these issues. But in general, the level of debate is nowhere near high enough, certainly in the movement on how hard it's going to be to get in, how hard it's going to be to actually break the mould and make serious progress from a socialist perspective. And then also, you know, how you generalise those ideas. This is a, a risk, as Kaya raised, that we still have on the left, where you look at who is turning up too often in rooms for Corbyn-backed events, I mean, it's good to have a younger demographic, a kind of, you know, to some respects, a downwardly mobile middle class, young people who are struggling with rent, who are in insecure jobs that are not paying great and so on. That's definitely part of our, our coalition. But there isn't enough conversation uh, inside the left of how many cul-de-sacs we are in in areas where we're not building the kind of alliances necessary not only to get over the line and win an election, which I think has been one of the problems of Labourism historically, is that you think of your alliances in that sense, but also that can embed change once you're in, that can fight for the government once you're in, but and also take the politics of Corbynism as it fights to sustain itself in Westminster into every community in the in the country. And so that kind of thinking is where, in my view, Tribune needs to be. And it's... I think, in fairness, a recognition of the seriousness of the moment here for not just people in Britain, particularly workers in Britain, but internationally, that we have a neoliberal centre which is incapable of responding to the moment. You know, it, it, it really does believe that the future looks like today forever. 
and just has no ability to produce responses. And we've seen this you know, time and time and time again. Even the kind of breakthroughs like Macron, we now know the limits of his political project uh, in, in France in terms of uh, not being able to produce the reforms that he had hoped in a number of areas and places that he has. They've been spectacularly unpopular and he's fallen down to kind of on levels of popularity. And elsewhere, the neoliberal centre had been unable to hold off the rise of the right. And so there has to be, not just for, for people in Britain, but internationally, there has to be a successful project there. That is going to require a serious uh, intellectual component to it. And Tribune wants to be contributing to that. Uh, so if people are looking for our orientations to the moment, I think that's, in my view, what it is. So you're operating on a subscription model, that is correct? That is correct. Yeah. So if anyone's interested in subscribing to Tribune, you can do so by going to tribunemag.co.uk. That's it. And I'm thinking right in suggesting subscriptions start from 19.95 a year for the digital and 29.95 a year for the six print magazines as well. That's it. Also bringing it back to the Left Book Club as well. Left Book Club's producing books now in collectible editions that are also not on sale to the general public, sourced from a range of publishers, including Pluto, but also bringing on board Haymarket, New Internationalist, PM Press, or books as well so far. And if you're interested in that, there are two models. Uh, there's a contemporary model and a classics model. Each is four ninety nine a month, and you would get six books a year. The contemporary set features new or recently published books covering the latest thinking from across the left on society, politics, economics, and culture. The classics, um, books from leading writers, radical writers across the centuries, including Jack London, H.G. Wells, Marx, Emma Goldman. And you can subscribe to both sets for eight ninety nine, And you can do that via leftbookclub.com. So again, thank you very much to Kea, Owen and Ronan for coming on the show. Tune in again next month for another episode of Radicals in Conversation. Mm-hmm.